0: Today we'll resume our study of Peter's second letter, and we will examine the second part of verse 1 of chapter 1. Uh, but for clarity, context, and encouragement, I'll read verses 1 through 8, so 2 Peter 1 verses 1 through 8 for all of us. If you would turn there in your copy of God's Word, you will find it on page 957 in, your, in the Bible in the seat back in front of you. And just so you know, I call your attention to that copy of God's Word, um, just in case your devices tend to be a distraction in these moments, um, or if you're like me, and even a study Bible can draw your attention away from what we're talking about. Um, So page 957 in your pew Bible. Hear now the Word of God. Simon Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, And knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. You as ears to hear, let him hear. Pray together. Father, You know all things. You not only see to the farthest galaxy, but Your power is there, holding it all together. You not only know our most secret thoughts, but in Your kindness and patience, You give us the ability to think. You make sure that our minds don't dissolve in a moment. You not only have dominion over all things and make Sure, that all things go according to Your purposes, but You're here among us even now. We praise You for drawing near to us. Who is like the Lord? a God of such might and majesty who would design and desire to be near His people, choosing to show His strength in our weakness. Thank You for who You are. We read these words that you've given us by your Spirit and your servant Peter, and we are in awe. We are stunned. Help us be more in awe of you and in awe more often. And Lord, please humble us today. There are many forms of pride in this room, in every heart, including mine. Some of us may think that there is little to be gained from your word that what we do here is close to, if not actually a waste of time. Help us see that Your words, even just a handful of them, are words of life and the only source of life. Please forgive us and cleanse us, Lord, of our pride. If you would, in your own heart and your own mind, pray now that the Lord would bless this time together, that He would give us freedom from distractions and that the Spirit would be pleased to use this time to grant repentance and faith. Father, I pray that You would lift us up and cause us to stand by the faith that can be ours by the righteousness of our Lord Jesus. Please cause our desire to be for Him. In His name and for His glory that I pray. Amen. So as we begin our exposition of the second half of verse 1, we're focusing on just these few words. To those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It may seem a little strange to focus on just such a short passage, But I think this statement merits our attention in a very focused way. The pace will increase as we get to the body of the letter. Uh, In this series, we'll average just under three verses a week, so don't freak out. Um, The first thing to notice, though, about this wonderful clause or part of the sentence is that this is Peter's intended audience. This is Peter's intended audience. In Peter's first letter, he lists several different Roman provinces or colonies uh, as the places and people to whom he is writing. And so in his second letter, the absence of any specific location, which is unusual in the New Testament, um, may indicate that Peter's first letter had a broader reception than he originally intended. He originally just writes to uh, these colonies in northern Asia Minor, and now he doesn't restrict it at all. Um, he, it seems like he's anticipating that more people than just Christians in Asia Minor will be reading his letter. So if this is the case, we can understand this by the use of analogy. Imagine that you were to write an email... To a couple that you knew and you were trying to help them understand something about the Christian faith. Say maybe they are young Christians, they had just gotten married and you and maybe an older, more seasoned Christian are writing to them trying to help them understand something. You might address the email something like, Dear Joe and Molly, just to pick a few names. But then let's say that letter, that email had a broader reception than you intended. It was so helpful for them that they passed it around at their growth group to their church, their pastor, and it kind of spread around, then let's say you were to write another letter or email to them. You might say something like, to whom it may concern. Uh, just knowing that this this pattern of broad circulation might continue. I think that's what's going on here. This statement that we want to run across to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ is the equivalent of a theological and very personal to whom it may concern. It is, in a deeper and more clear way, his way of saying to you, his original audience, and all Christians who may read this. And this is no small observation. You might think of making a big deal out of nothing. Why is this a significant observation? It tells us, very clearly, what the Apostle Peter thinks about every Christian. And that is no small thing. Those he has met. Those he has not met. Those with a Gentile background and at least some with a Jewish background. Those who are new in the faith and those who have maybe believed as long as Peter himself. Those who are older. Those who are younger. Those who need instruction, encouragement, or rebuke. He's writing to those who are weak, theologically, and to those who are strong. He's writing to those who are alive, and maybe he has some sense that this letter is going to be passed down, so he's writing to those who are in future generations, not alive yet, yet to be born. And how does he address them? What would you say if you were given the opportunity to write a letter or an article, or whatever, that you knew that almost every Christian would read? And that it would be passed down from generation to generation? How would you address the whole family of God? There are a few Bible candidates. If I had that opportunity, I would maybe say brothers and sisters. i say that a lot. Maybe I would say beloved. It's a very biblical, rich term. Or maybe just simply saint or those in Christ, Paul's favorite terminology. But Peter gets even more mileage out of just a few words, and he chooses to address all the Christians in Asia Minor, all the Christians in Asia Minor, and any Christian at any time, anywhere, who would ever read his letter. And he calls them those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours. I love this so much, and I hope by the end of this message you will love it too. Simultaneously and without much effort, Peter turns a part of a letter that is usually passed over to get to the good stuff, right? The meat, the body of the letter. And he, number one, he humbles himself. Number two, he lifts others up, and by doing both those things he sets an example for us. Humble yourself, lift others up. And three, he teaches us some profound things about the faith itself. So I'm going to give you my paraphrase, my paraphrase of chapter 1, verse 1, part B, to those who have been allotted an equally precious faith as ours because of the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. I won't justify every word I just use in the paraphrase, but I'm going to give it to you again. I think this gives a, a more clunky, but, but perhaps more helpful sense of what's being said here. To those who have been allotted an equally precious faith as ours because of the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Maybe may a li- more literal, but also a straightforward, um, not, not very artistic translation. So, we're going to look at a few of the words that, that are a little bit different and try to get down to the sense of what this is. So the ESV renders this word obtained. And I'm, I'm putting it in my translation, allotted. The, the word here carries the sense of casting lots. And, and it's used in the New Testament to refer to the casting of lots. Um, one of the more notable ones is in the, in the story of Zechariah. Do you remember the story? Zechariah... John the Baptist's dad, his family is chosen by Lot to see to certain responsibilities in the temple. And that's why he's there in the temple. His family was chosen and he goes in and he's burning incense, right? So, so his family was chosen by Lot out of the families of Levi. And that's why he's in there and where Gabriel meets him and tells him that his wife Elizabeth will bear a son it was also used to the actual casting of lots of the Roman soldiers at the death of Jesus to decide who would get his robe because they didn't want to tear it because it was one continuous piece. So they cast lots to see who would get it. It's also used to talk about Judas turning aside from the ministry that was allotted to him. And Peter saying, we've we got to give this ministry, we've got to allot this to someone else. So what is Peter saying? He's using a word that under other circumstances refers to something that happens by chance or by the rolling of something like dice for the casting of lots. Is Peter saying that it was by random chance that these people received a faith of equal standing? No. The verb carries more of a definite sense of what word I'm picking, Allotment. The point is not that the dice or anything else or anyone else is using. That's not the point. The idea is that through some process, an outcome or set of circumstances is determined or allotted to you. Young people in this room, this is exactly what your parents are saying to you, the flavor of their sentence when you ask, what's for dinner? And they say dinner is what dinner will be. It is being allotted to you, decided for you, and given to you. If you don't like it, that's dinner. Tough luck if you want something else. You are given it. It's similar to, like I already alluded to, apostleship. That that Jesus is allotting to the twelve their share in this ministry. So Peter is saying that all Christians everywhere are allotted or given their faith. Maybe a word you could use to help you understand this passage better is received. To those who have received a faith of equal standing. Obtained is just fine, just like it is in the ESV, but received is maybe even better. The idea is to receive something that someone else is assigning to you. And how can that be? The idea is that even our faith is something that is given to us something that is assigned to us. We can think that faith is what we bring to the table. And that's how we approach God. We trust Him. We bring faith and He gives us salvation in Jesus. But that's not the idea here or in other passages of Scripture. Here, someone else is the one who allots to you your faith. Hopefully you're aware of the passage in Ephesians chapter 2. It is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. But another place that makes much the same point is actually in Peter's first letter. Chapter 1, verses uh, 20 and 21. Peter says, It is because of Christ that we believe in God. Through Him we are believers in God. So Jesus is our Savior, for those who believe, not in just providing us some way out of the burning building. He doesn't just grant us salvation. Here you go. No, He's our Savior in the sense of coming to us, resuscitating us, convincing us to trust Him, and to follow Him out of the burning building and leading us step by step or, or carrying us most of the way, if not all the way, out to safety. By His Spirit, He works in us both to will and to do His good pleasure. And that includes even the faith we need in order to believe. So that addresses the issue of allotment or, being, or receiving and he says, he uses, the ESV translates, it, it's equal standing. But I think that misses an important sense here of this word. I've used the phrase equally precious. I think that gets more of the idea. Equally valuable, you could also say. This is actually the phrase in this half of this verse that I'm most excited about. Because without it, this whole verse doesn't make as many points. It's not, it's not as insightful The sentence actually works just fine without it. It would sound something like this, to those who have been allotted faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So what point is Peter making by modifying it by saying equally precious, equally valuable? It does carry the sense of standing, so equal standing on par with That's the idea. You know, when you're shopping for jewelry, say for an engagement ring or something for Valentine's, fair warning for you guys, it's coming up, or an anniversary, that's not, you know, not a common experience to be out there just buying all sorts of jewelry. If if it is for you, then maybe we should talk and we got some funding projects that you could get behind, but not a common experience for most of us to go out and shop for jewelry. But it, it works for this analogy because it, there are significant moments in your life, especially if you're a guy and you're searching for the engagement ring and you see the advertisements and they talk about you know different types of silver. So you have sterling silver and different qualities of gold, 14 carat, 24 carat. And it's the same with precious gems. They talk about clarity and cut and brilliance. And so what Peter is saying is that this faith that has been allotted or given to you is of the same value or equally as precious as theirs. The they, or ours, that he's referring to are, I believe, the apostles. Um, I was prepared to defend that, but for the sake of time, I won't. If you're interested in why I say he's referring to the apostles, come and talk to me later. For now, just let it stand and, let it, and just think about it a little bit. Peter is saying that all these people have a faith that is equally as precious as even the faith of the apostles. And by doing so, right? You know how an equal sign works. All your faith is equal to ours in preciousness. And so what he's also doing, and not just humbling himself and encouraging them, is to equalize all of them. Putting them on the same playing field. He's saying, All you guys and gals out there who have a faith of equal standing with ours also have a faith of equal standing with each other. Thus, he's not only encouraging his hearers but equalizing them. We don't like to be equalized. We don't like level playing field, especially when it comes to consequential things like faith and our position before God. Now, just as a caveat, you know, I'm, what I'm saying here is nothing less than if you have genuine faith in the Lord Jesus, your faith is equally as precious, valuable, equal standing on par with the faith of the apostles. But at the same time, just as a caveat, we'll get to this when we get to those verses. Uh, that's why I read verses 1 through 8. Peter immediately shifts to tell his readers how they are supposed to supplement their faith. So, so faith by itself isn't enough. Faith gets to work, right? So you can't just stand on your laurels and and pretend like because you've received this precious faith that it's all done, that's all you need, you've got to get it to work. You know, I love working with wood, I love working with metal, and I like tools. And I would love to own a CNC machine. I probably never will. But let's say someone gave me a state-of-the-art CNC machine. That's, that's where, you know, the little... Arm moves around, chiseling, you know, drilling down and making the exact object you want. Say someone gave that to me and I, and I loved it so much. It was so precious, so valuable that it just sat in my shed for years and years and years. And, and, and you got the same one and, and you get to work and you do stuff with it, right? It's the same machine, equally precious, but one is doing something with it and the other isn't. That's the sense that we need to put our work, our, our faith to work. So we'll talk about that when we get to those other passages, but here the point is just about the quality, the preciousness of your faith. So let's talk about the meaning of faith for a little bit. A lot hinges on this word. This is probably a good exercise, a, a homework assignment for you, especially if you claim to be a believer, or if you're interested at all. Maybe go home and write for yourself a definition of faith. So much hinges on this word. What you think it means will determine the direction, the character, and flavor of your Christian life. And having a wrong enough idea about what faith is will end in condemnation. One of the reasons it might sound surprising to hear Peter say that His hearers have a faith of equal standing with theirs, with the apostles, is the implication that this applies to mature believers and immature believers. Imagine that you're a brand new Christian living in Bithynia, which is northern modern day Turkey, uh, in a little fishing village on the coast of the Black Sea. The church virtually met every day back in the first century so you can pick any day so but let's say you're you're fishing you're a fisherman and you're out there with your business partner and it's and it's Saturday and you haven't had a good day at work and and you're just frustrated and your your coworker your business partner there in the fishing boat with you starts sharing the gospel with you and as the day concludes you repair your nets and you go home you go home with him and you keep talking about the gospel and late into the evening you get it and you understand wow jesus is in fact the messiah you're born again you you become a christian the next evening so sunday evening you go to him go with him to his church this this small band of christians that are meeting together and let's say that sunday happens to be the very day that this little church on the northern shores of modern-day Turkey, Bithynia, on the coast of the Black Sea, that that's the Sunday they receive a letter from the Apostle Peter. So that Sunday you go, you maybe you're feeling uneasy about this whole new life you're supposed to live, and you're excited at the, at the same time to meet these people who believe in the same Jesus. So there's some nervousness and excitement, and then as the meeting gets started in the evening, you're introduced to your new brothers and sisters as as a new believer, someone who's been born again, and everyone's excited and joyfully welcomes you. And after the fellowship meal that that church has, uh, the elder or pastor gets up and explains to this little church that they've just gotten this letter from the great Apostle Peter, shared with them from a neighboring church, and There's reactions of excitement and amazement. Oh, that's wonderful. His first letter was amazing. Let's see what he has in his second letter. Maybe it's 25 or 30 people and they're all excited. And you lean over and ask your business partner, the one who led you to the Lord, who's Peter? And maybe one of the elders, having some situational awareness, knowing that you're a new believer, and and starts explaining the life of Jesus and who Peter was and how the apostles are this god authorized link between the teachings of Jesus and all Christians everywhere. And that, Peter, the first of the apostles, has gotten a letter to you, and this is your first full day of being a Christian. What, what a day to begin your life in Christ. First day in this church, first full day of being a Christian, and I get to hear a letter from one of the leaders of the church, commissioned by Christ Himself. Wonderful! Wonderful! And then as they read the letter, you hear Peter say, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now wait, you might say to your new brothers and sisters afterwards. Who who is he referring to? Who's this letter for? Certainly he can't be talking about people like me. Well, why would you say that? Well, I just became a Christian. I was in the temple of pagan gods yesterday offering sacrifices for them to help my struggling fishing business. I've got lots of sins I've not even started working on, and relationships like with my wife that I've not even started repairing. I've been a Christian for less than 24 hours. There's so much I don't know. How can Peter say that I have a faith of equal standing with His? Surely he's just talking about the really serious or well-educated or experienced Christians, right? Like maybe your, your pastor or whatever, right? No. The answer is no. No. Dear brother, Peter is talking about you too. That's the answer from this passage and in many other places in Scripture. Even if you're a new Christian, believing for less than 24 hours, you've received or been allotted a faith of equal standing with the apostles. And I think, especially those of us that are well versed in the nature of faith and what the gospel is, that we see that, we hear that, and we understand it on paper. It's easy to, you know ascribed to mentally, but I think we really struggle with it when the rubber hits the road. Part of the reason I think we struggle with this and struggle to live it out is because we're confused about what the nature of faith really is. Faith has two components. Trust means essentially the same thing as Belief in Greek, and commitment. Trust and commitment. Faith is not just beliefs about a person, but trusting in that person so much so that in view of all the ways that you trust them, you become committed to them. Faith in Christ is not just basic trust. Because, here's an example, you're trusting in your chair right now to hold you up. You've sat in a chair just like it before, or maybe that exact one, and you have a reasonable amount of confidence that it's going to keep you sitting there and not fall apart and cause you some mild damage. But faith in Christ that saves has to be. (laughs) It is much more robust than your trust in your chair right now or in any other thing. Our trust in Christ starts with believing that He will keep His promises. That's what it means to trust Him. We trust that He will see us through and keep us safe on the last day. And that He will do what He said that He will do for us and with our sins before God, the righteous judge. So that kind of trust, that degree of trust has to do with so much of the fundamentals. Life, death, eternity, sin, righteousness, and judgment. That kind of trust leads to a little more ownership of the relationship. It's not very consequential if the chair doesn't hold up its end of the bargain to keep you sitting. And as you start to feel it giving way, you could stand up and avoid any injury at all. But if your trust in the Lord Jesus is ill-founded, we're lost. More trust is made possible, the more promises are made and kept, and the more consequential the promises are. So, here's an example. Commitment and trust go together in marriage. I had the privilege of officiating a wedding last weekend, and the husband and wife, or the husband and wife-to-be, made promises to each other. And there's a level of trust based on the relationship that this person will keep these promises. More trust is made possible as they keep these promises to each other and more commitment is exchanged the more faithfulness there is in the keeping of those promises. So, trust and commitment go together in marriage. They go together with our faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Christ is more than just believing He exists. It is more than just being enamored with Him or excited about all that He can do for us. Rather, it is trusting in Him to keep His promises and reciprocating in living our lives for Him. I want you to think right now in your own hearts if that's what you mean when you say, I believe in Jesus, if you do claim to do so. Does it not ring hollow to say, I trust in Jesus? and to think that that will be enough for you, if while saying that, you don't really believe or live like that His commandments are good and His way is best? Believing that He exists and asking Him in some sense to live in your heart is not what it means to be a Christian. Do you, right now, trust in His promises? And how does your life the things you're seeking, what you make your life about and what you make yourself out to be, how do those things answer that question? So if you have this robust understanding of faith, trust and commitment to a person, we can see why this claim that Peter is making here, how it's more astounding and how it also is explained. Sure, there are different levels of spiritual maturity. That's that's basic to our understanding of how Christianity works. We know that there are some who are weak in faith and some who are strong in faith. That's the Bible's own terminology. Nonetheless, Peter claims that all Christians everywhere, if they have faith at all, it is faith that is equally as precious and of equal standing. How can that be? Because there is no such thing as inferior faith if you have faith at all. A person who has faith in Christ, trusts in Him, is fully committed to Him in this rich way that we've been discussing, it takes faith from the realm of something that we can do and think and feel, and it puts it in the realm of something only God can do. The reason your faith, if you are in Christ and genuinely trust Him and are committed to Him, is of equal value as the faith of the apostles is because God created it and allotted it to you just like He did for them. And so let's look at the causal statement. So, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. In my paraphrase, I use the, phrase, the, the statement because of, because of the righteousness of our God and Savior Jesus Christ. So much could be said. Uh, but I want to discuss this dual meaning of purpose that Peter has in mind here with the use of this preposition and show why because of fits both meanings. Actually, in Greek, the word is simply in. In. Those who have obtained or been allotted a faith of equal value as ours in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So what is he saying? That's a tiny preposition. What is going on here? Of course, in the literal sense, it refers to where you are or something that you are within. I'm in my house or I'm in the lake. Hopefully not this season. But that's not really the literal sense here. It's not the righteousness of Jesus isn't a place, literally. But it also speaks, this this word in Greek speaks of instrumentality, in. So I will say something like, I went to town in the car. That doesn't mean just that I'm inside the car. It means it was by use of the car and being inside of it and using what it provided that I was able to get to my desired destination, instrumentality, or cause. So Peter, in using this word, is explaining the how. How is it that all believers, young and old, mature and immature alike, all have faith of equal standing? Well because they have this faith, they have been given or assigned it, not because someone rolled the dice somewhere in the cosmos, but rather as a result of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is Christ in His righteousness who grants faith and gives and assigns it to us. He is, if you will, the source of faith your face, and so it is equally precious. It is by operation of His righteousness. Christ, in His righteousness, gives this faith. This is what causes it to happen. So that's the first sense that the preposition in is used. The second sense is that of ground or place in the metaphorical sense. Our faith takes us or places us in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That is the foundational reason that faith has equal standing in the new and even inexperienced believers. We are clothed through faith, not just with a legal verdict of innocent, but we are draped over, covered, placed in the righteousness of Christ because Faith unites you to Christ Himself. This is the heartbeat of the Gospel. You must get this. We are counted righteous. We are placed in the righteousness of Christ through faith. That's why faith has equal standing. Because if it does that, can't get any much better than that. If faith unites you to the Son of God like the Bible says it does, if that trust and commitment to Him as a person unites you with Him and you receive His righteousness, there can't be any higher level. That's that's as far as you can go. So these are the two senses. The whole thing only works. We have this faith because Christ is righteous. He grants it to us in His righteousness. Not because of our own efforts. Not because of the rolling of the cosmic dice. Or because we had the right kind of upbringing or read the right books. No. But because Jesus Christ the righteous, in His righteousness, was pleased to assign the faith that you have to you. And this faith even if it is new and even less than a day old, puts you right up there on equal footing with the apostles of the Lord Himself and the saints of old. Because it is Jesus' very own righteousness that is given to you through faith. There is no higher standing. There is no greater preciousness or value than that. So, A few questions now that we've delved down and looked at each of these consequential words. Questions that help us think about how we should believe and how we should live. Questions unto faith and obedience. How do these truths humble us? Many of these questions that we'll ask have obvious answers. But friends, we really do need to humble ourselves. especially in view of this passage. Anything good about you is only what Jesus has allotted to you in His righteousness. In our thinking, in the way we think about ourselves, in the way we view others, we need to put faith, even the very faith we need to be saved, as a gift from God. As Paul asks the Corinthian congregation in Second Corinthians What do you have that you didn't receive? Rhetorical question. And if that's true, that you don't have anything that you didn't receive, even the will to make use of the faith that you've been allotted, what do you have that you didn't receive? Then how humble ought we to be before the Lord and before others? Secondly, how do these truths reveal the gospel? How is the Gospel shown through these truths? One of the phrases that we didn't have a chance to look at or delve down deep on is God and Savior, using a dual expression to refer to Jesus. In order to be saved, you must have Christ. Christ is the only One who can save. The only name given under heaven and earth by which we must be saved. You must have Him as Savior, but you must also have Him as God. Commitment and trust go together because Jesus is both God and Savior. Many want the Savior stuff and the blessing stuff and the liberation from hell stuff and the promises and the peace and the mercy, but no God stuff. Lord stuff, obedience kinds of things he is first God then Savior. Additionally, consider the simplicity and encouragement of this. Through faith, which He gives, you are considered on equal standing with the Lord and His saints. Because it is the righteousness of Christ Himself that is offered to you through faith. Is that encouraging message, the clarity of that offer, the joy that is there, the promise that it holds, the way that we're relating the gospel to those we hope to be saved? I think the way that they might characterize our message is better do and think the right things, or it's hell for you, buddy. But no, as we heard last week, God has made a way to be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. And we see today that He assigns the faith we need to do this. We bring nothing to the table. So, do you need this faith? Do you look within and say, I don't see this kind of trust and commitment towards Christ. I I realize that I lack that. And if, if you see it and know I want it because I want to be saved, what do you do? If it comes from God, if it is allotted from Him, what shall we do? How about ask Him for it? How about in humility and with sincerity, ask the Lord for the faith that you need? Come to Him, and He will by no means cast you out ever Thirdly, how do these truths promote unity? Probably knew I was going here. How do these truths promote unity? How do you look at your brothers and sisters? How do you treat your brothers and sisters in this room? Is it in line with the fact that they have a faith of equal standing with the Apostle Peter? And yes, even you? What about the way that we view the very young believers? Do we consider them to have a faith of equal standing? How do you view and think about believers who have not had the battle scars that you have had? What about the believers who annoy us and don't get it or get us? What about the believers who you think think weird things or believe strange stuff? Aren't you glad that Jesus saves people who think weird things? If He didn't, you and I would be on the outside looking in. What about the way you, husbands, treat your wives? Do you view them as those who have a faith, a faith of equal standing with yours? Equally valuable, each equally precious? What about our time here, at this building, on this property? It doesn't look like that we value each other in this way if we spend time only with the people that are, are our same age or in the same life situation. We need to think about how we as individuals, how you, how I need to change. Peter's life itself teaches us that you can walk out of step with the Gospel just by the place that you choose to sit and why. Read about that in Galatians. So let's take seriously how we spend our time talking to each other and what we do with each other while we're here together and in other gatherings of ours. Think of the way that you treat your brother or sister in Christ. Maybe the one giving you a hard time. Would you treat the Apostle Peter the same way? If your answer is no... We need to repent. Because that brother and sister, that one giving you a hard time or you're giving them a hard time, the one that just annoys you, does in fact have a faith of equal standing with the apostles. How do these truths encourage prayer? Since all of this is true, How much further do you personally need to go to have a right, humble mindset? How are you, if you're really honest with yourself, how how far do you need to go so that you don't see yourself in a proud way versus your brothers and sisters? We need His help. And we need His help to humble us immensely if you struggle with pride or I could probably say since we all struggle with pride the end goal the objective of humility is something that we don't quite yet understand if you take off on a quest to reach that destination of humility with pride in your heart you're never going to get there so we need to pray we need to humble ourselves before him so that he would help us unify together in that humility Lastly, how do these truths promote worship? Well, I think in two ways, through thanksgiving and gratitude. Thanksgiving and gratitude are two of the primary roots of genuine worship. It's very, very difficult as a Christian, or just a human in general, to render anything like worship if you're ungrateful, if you don't have thanksgiving Bubbling up, as it were, in view of all how God has blessed you, joy will actually be a far-off, nostalgic goal for you. If you don't have Thanksgiving and gratitude. Since this is all from Him, and His faith is a lot, the faith is allotted to us. We have nothing other than that which He has given to us. And how much of our time and our energy and our creativity ought to be spent in thanksgiving and gratitude and praying prayers of praise and thanksgiving together and singing songs of worship with glad and generous hearts? He has lifted us up from the dust and granted us faith because He is righteous. And because of that same righteousness, we are not only accepted and granted peace with God. It is now it is now just as right and good and fair because of that faith, because of that righteousness for you to be seated in a place of honor in the new heavens and the new earth as it is for Christ to be seated in a place of honor in the new heavens and the new earth. So, until He comes, let us walk in joyful, grateful humility before His presence and with each other. Father, we praise you for your kindness and that there is no room for boasting in your presence, but there is room for everyone. We are given a seat at the table because of your kindness and the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grant us the humility, the happiness in walking with each other in this kind of love and acceptance and welcome towards each other. Thank You for granting us this precious faith that binds us to Christ forever. In His name we pray. Amen.